Welcome to the NGA Elson Lecture. This series features distinguished contemporary artists whose work is represented in the gallery's permanent collection. The Honorable and Mrs. Edward E. Elson generously endowed the series. In this podcast, recorded on March 8, 2007, at the National Gallery of Art as part of the Elson Lecture Series, Sean Scully, an artist of international acclaim, discusses his work in the modern tradition of abstraction. Imbuing his paintings, drawings, prints, and photographs with the poetic potential of geometry, light, and color, Scully has also enriched understanding of the art of our time through his many important writings. I think one of the things I'm going to talk about today is the issue of immersion and the creation of style and the possibility and difficulty of abstraction and how painting in general has um, managed to reinvigor itself. I'm not sure if that's a word, but anyway, I like it. So, I started out as a figurative artist, and the one on the left is um, a seated figure, um, something along those lines. Anyway... Painted in 68. So I'm one of the few artists working abstractly that has worked his way through figuration somewhat. I can't say I really have a badge of honor in figuration, but badge of valor. But I worked figuratively for a while, and then I arrived at abstraction, but through figuration, otherwise I didn't simply start as an abstract painter. So the question was, why abstraction? Um, one on the le- on one on the right is Cream Red Cream, 1973. So why give up the figure, which is the basis of all human life? The figure and the painting of the figure can never go out of style. The body and the way that the body is seen and dressed is constantly evolving. And I mean that politically, socially. Thus, it makes an inexhaustible subject for the painter. As political human relations evolve, so does the human figure as subject, because it is always being seen in a contemporary way, and in fact cannot be truly experienced in any other way. There is, however, another human impulse and need that is also constant, and that is the need for abstraction, which I believe is bound up with a need for spiritual ecstasy. I believe that there is an abstract rhythmical structure that runs parallel to all life and that unconsciously binds us together. There are countless examples of this in many cultures, old and new, which you know probably as well as I do, so I won't illustrate those partly because we don't have time and I'm here to talk about my work. I only bring it up at the beginning of my talk to help you to understand the thinking and beliefs that lie behind my decision, first to paint, that's very important, and secondly, to paint abstract. Um, It's what the Aboriginal artists in Australia refer to as the song of life. And the song of life can only be sung visually as abstract. So, I was in a fairly formal uh, figurative painting tradition for a while, working obviously out of German Expressionism, French painting and so on, and it was very painful in a sense to give up the relationship to the figure. And I think that you will see as time goes by, as I talk about my work, that this has influenced the character of my abstraction. It's given it a certain quality that makes it somewhat distinctive. The painting on the right is layered uh, grids and uh, comes from my relationship with the pattern making in exotic cultures, for us anyway, such as Morocco and uh, Northern Africa generally. So it comes from this idea of the rhythmical, ecstatic feeling that can be provoked by pattern making, which is very big in enormous um, uh, 
physically enormous parts of the world. Here you'll see a couple more around about the same period. Um, these were painted in um, 72, orange slide, diagonal inset in 73. Now, as you see in uh, the painting on the left, orange slide, it's made with grids, but the grids, in fact, slide. They are out of sync, out of rhythm. So it's very complicated, and it's not, it's not any, any longer simply a question of concrete, or what they call in Europe, concrete Kunst. So it's not a simple grid, it's a cacophonic grid. Layers and layers and layers of information. These paintings are not very well known in America, hardly been shown. Um, and the one on the right is the first or the second attempt, in a sense, to insert the figure again. And I mean that symbolically and metaphorically. So the triangle at the top stands for the insertion of another body into a field. So I'm not simply accepting all over painting. And this has, in fact, been a fight that I've been in for a long time, with myself, of course, all over painting and not all over painting, to embrace it or to submit to it and then question it and to put back the figure, to insert the relationship and to fight once again for the way things are built in the world, one thing against another. On the left is a very, very beautiful painting by Malievich. Um, Suprematism is called 1915. And um, on the right is a painting by myself that I made when I first came to the United States. So when I first came to the United States, I, in a sense, burned my bridges. And that is, I believe, why I stayed here. Because most people who come here, they stay for a while, you know, and then when it gets really... Um, how can I put this? Um, brutal uncultivated, inhuman. Darwinian, perhaps, is the best term. It's a Darwinian culture, America. When it gets uh, emphatically Darwinian, most people that come from Europe tend to go back to Europe. And I made it impossible for myself by symbolically burning out of my work everything except the horizontal line. And these paintings are um, made of different kinds of blacks with thin horizontal lines on top. Uh, that's called Horizontals Grey Black Diptych, 1976. And the Malevich is round about a little after the time of the Russian Revolution, and it represents the idea that we can overwhelm borders and we can make a, a, a kind of international family with an idea. And the idea, of course, was Marxism, human family. So we wanted to make, therefore, a contemporary language. And this point in our, our evolution has affected me dramatically. And I am from the 60s, not that the Russian Revolution took, part in the six, took place in the 60s, but it, the, the second wave, in fact the last romantic gasp of internationalism took place in the 60s, I would assert. Um, people were trying to speak, for example, Esperanto, Esperanto being a mongrel um, conglomeration of various languages whereby we would be able to communicate with each other as brothers and sisters and we would no longer be divided any longer by tribalism which leads ultimately to nationism and this thought 
this ideal, the idea that we can, in fact, be a unified family has affected me dramatically. And this, I think, forced me into being an abstract painter because I believed in it. I believed that we could communicate with abstract shapes, abstract forms, and this would somehow bind us together. And this is what I'm still working on. The one on the right is not by me. <laughs> now, I never, I never really liked uh, Andy Warhol's work much, but as a figure, he interests me. There's a slippage in his work. And I think that the slippage, bad registration, creates a psychological space. He is, in fact, in a way, a sort of society um, um, portrait artist. And I saw a uh, show of his recently at uh, Gozium, and to me it looked more, more or less like wallpaper. But what interests me about him is him as a character, as a human being, and as a totality, so that the work is him, he is the work, and the space between the artist and the work becomes, in a sense, indivisible. It's a total mindset, a total attitude that creates a work of art that's a natural consequence of that, almost. Of course, one can argue that all artists are um, very much like their work, but I would say that some artists are more like their work than others. That's not to say that artists who... Um, have distance are not as, not as good. I don't say that. But I do think that it's a 20th century phenomenon, this closing of the gap. And I will go into that more. And this, in a sense, has been very important to me. And I see myself very much as an artist like this, who works and who produces almost organically artworks. Um, by the way, I wanted to tell you that the one on the left, mine, is a mirror. It's called mirror. And that's a mirror. This also raises the difficulty of abstraction, of course. It raises its, its possibility and its difficulty. Its difficulty is that you can't refer to anything that's already famous. It's not a coincidence, of course, that the paintings of Andy Warhol that are the most famous are the ones that are of the famous subjects. And this is true of all society portrait painters. So it seems to me that if you disassociate yourself from that, from that, connection to something that's already famous. Marilyn is already famous. She doesn't need Andy Warhol to make her more famous. Although one could argue that she is now more famous because of Andy Warhol. And Andy Warhol is certainly more famous because of her. But if you take that away from yourself, you gain a certain freedom, psychological freedom, emotional freedom, which is what I'm looking for in my work. But it was, then you give up the connection to things. So the question is how to gain an audience or how to maintain an audience, how to gather an audience around an abstract body of work. As much as I like, for example, Malievich, who I like a lot more than I like Andy Warhol, I would have to concede that you might have a smaller audience. So his work has a remoteness to it. That doesn't prove that it's not as good, of course, 
But in the end, art has to, in some way, mean something to people. So these are the kind of questions that I'm always um, playing around with. The other thing I wanted to bring up was the relationship between Campbell's Soup and Andy Warhol, Heinz 57 and Andy Warhol. So with Heinz 57, you can eat pinto beans, baked beans, French beans, chickpeas, big peas, so on and so on. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that it's Heinz 57. And Heinz 57 homogenizes and dominates the subject. So in that sense, Heinz and Campbell's is like art. It's like a style of art. He's doing the same thing. One can argue that I'm doing the same thing. Which brings me to the point of the hand and the sensibility. And I would argue that when you introduce the hand, the possibility for the evolution the very slow evolution of a way of working is complicated by the hand. Because then you've got the mind and the heart and the hand. So in a sense, an exalted sense of craft. And this can gradually imitate nature in the way that it slowly evolves. And while I'm, you know, doing my thing, I'll show you something else. Lest you get bored. Now, here's something I read today in The Sun, which I thought was kind of interesting, by David Cohen, who I like a lot. Something about abstract painting attracts dogmatic criticism. Figurative painting is understood to belong to millennia-long traditions in which so much is possible that a degree of pluralism is inevitable. And yet, despite abstract painting's rich hundred-year history with roots deep into visual culture beyond that brisk century, its champions still fall into the habit of issuing damning strictures about what abstract painting is, should be, and ought not to be. So, if you happen to support artists who make romantic, swirling, spatially ambiguous paintings, just let it be known, in no uncertain terms, that an opposite mode, as diagrammatic flatness, for instance, is anathema. The blame for this mode of criticism, by the way, lies with abstract painting itself, with so much emphasis on starkly specific formal means Abstract painting often feels didactic, as if its line of inquiry as a program or an agenda, in a way that is less likely to apply to painting with pictorial subject matter. So that's a very good point. I spent five years teaching recently, and uh, I had conceptual artists in my class, photographers, sculptors, no, sculptor, um, figurative artists, abstract artists in equal measure. So I don't make a distinction, and I'm really not interested in these strange restrictions that people put on what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. I think it comes from this idea of formalism, which in fact is, in a sense worn out. And what I would like to show, a little bit anyway, indicate, is the possibility that an art form, any art form, and in this case abstract painting, evolves and can evolve in ways that are unusual, if it can be allowed to do so if the folds between hard positions 
can be seen as harboring potential, is the way I would put it. These come from a period where my work was rather um, disciplined uh, in the early 80s, still in America, still looking for a way to move abstract paintings forward, so I start to improvise on a grid. So I use broken up areas, broken up zones, one against the other. The one on the left is called Italian, and the one on the right is called Fort, where the system is broken a little bit. This shows the beginning of something that becomes much more um, full-blown in the 80s. These were painted around 1980, I think, yeah, 1980. So one on the um, right, those four little canvases. So I start to paint and put things together in the way that collage artists did. One on the left is Jasper Johns, white flag, um, six, uh, 55. Very beautiful painting and extremely iconic. The one on the right is Maesta by myself, painted in, I believe, 83. Yeah. 83. And the one on the left, the John's painting, is a painting that uses, as Andy Warhol uses, something that already exists and something that's already famous. You drive through the suburbs of America and um, depending on how much you like seeing the American flag, that will determine how long you can drive through the suburbs of America. <laughs> I myself can't put up with it very long, but I never like uniforms all that much. However, the American flag is extremely famous already as an icon. And what Johns does as a figurative painter, not an abstract painter, is try to have it both ways. Well, in fact, does have it both ways <laughs> because the painting is extremely beautiful in the way it's painted, referring to Cezanne, I suppose, and uh, suprematism in a way. It has the concreteness of suprematism and the pictorial complexity of old master painting. So there you have it all. Very wonderful painting. In my painting... It's flag-like. Three panels, very heavily painted, kind of bashed together, moved around. There was a lot of freewheeling, improvisational experimentation going on at the time. Middle panel is sculptural, of course, sticking out. And the two whites are not the same. The one on the left and one on the right are not the same, but they hug the blue and red panel in the center in a kind of desperate physical embrace and it's flag-like but it's a flag for a country that doesn't exist it's not a flag that does exist and that, it, that signifies a profound difference between the frontality of the Johns which represents a subject that already is there and the near emblematic or the emblematic quality of my painting that is near flag-like, that is, it reminds you of something that doesn't actually exist in the real world. These paintings follow the other two paintings that I showed you before, where I now try very hard to um, open it up. One is called Adoration, 82, one is called Bags and Fronts, 81. So what I was doing at this time was trying to reestablish relationships 
without being forced to paint them into place because I wanted to break with what I knew about modulation, conciliation, painting of a relationship. Um, maybe I'll refer to a couple of quotes here that I want to read to you. You know, I'm very interested in philosophers, and a couple of philosophers are quite interested in my paintings because I think that I move things around in the way that philosophers move words around. They move words around like stones. So, um, Theodor Adorno, one of the most important philosophers in post-war Germany, and was a teacher of... Uh, um, I'll remember in a minute. Um, he says... The half understood and the half experienced is not a precursor to education or formation or cultivation, but its deadly enemy. So my position is that all things are possible in the hands of different people. But I believe to understand something with profundity its consequences all the way through from front to back, from back to front, is vital. And in other words, I agree with that remark, that I think that the half-experienced doesn't really get at anything. So I'm an artist who is, in fact sacrificial, self-sacrificial. This is the point that I wish to make today in terms of style. So that the separation between the person and the thing being painted becomes so deep that, as I said before, with the element of the hand, which is essential in painting, it's transformed. But it's not transformed formally, necessarily, but it is nevertheless capable of being transformed. Now, Nietzsche, who so many artists like to quote, myself included, writing around 1875 says that there might be an order or structure in the world which we are incapable of capturing. And this is something I believe in. So I've written a little thing here for you. I changed the image so you don't get board. Um, <clears throat> my attempt is to hold it as one might hold a living bird. And this largely accounts for the difference between my work and my contemporaries. And I'm talking about artists who are more um, committed to geometry. I do not subscribe to the grip of extreme geometry. I would call what I do a breathing order. Thus, my work must be impure and deeply nuanced. I'm striving to express this possible order whilst allowing it to breathe and to be available to multiple interpretations. I said before, as I said before in the title of my painting, a kind of mirror but a breathing mirror is the way I would describe it. So it's, ulti so it's ultimately poetic. So these two, one on the left is called Malloy, and the one on the right is um, No Neo. These two are full-blown 80s paintings, and there I was really kind of in my stride, both painted in 84. And I would paint sections. It was very, very free, very exciting, physical. I would paint them in the way that I thought that Van Gogh would paint stripes, almost. Extremely passionately put together. Always, of course, with stripes, insistently so, but the stripes don't make any sense mathematically. Everything is, sub everything is made out of feeling, including the color. However, 
they, they retain a relationship with constructivism, but the relationship that they contain with constructivism is wayward. It's renegade in some way. Well, the, the paintings don't really make any sense, and they're, and they're not trying to arrive at sense. Maybe a kind of order, but a difficult order, an argumentative order. And again, things are slammed together, very passionately, insistently painted. And there's no space in the painting. I'm not painting space. I'm not depicting space. I'm painting realities, but passionately so. One on the <clears throat> painting of mine on the left is called Falling Wrong, 1985. Painting on the right is Murphy, 1984. So you see the things that I'm referring to in, in these paintings with the titles, titles are very important to me, are a little crazy. I'm not referring to anything um, that's got much to do with order. So what I'm doing is, is in a sense, misusing the language of order and uh, falling wrong. Um, seems like it could be something out of Beckett, but it's not. But it has that same attitude. So falling wrong is better than falling right, so to speak. And falling wrong is interesting. So the, the wrongness in the painting is as interesting as the rightness. There's a very difficult position, of course, to maintain in terms of uh, quality or to make a convincing painting. But what I wanted to say also before I wrote a little note here is um, that banality, the John's painting, is very banal. As if living in America, you know, you need to need, need to see another American flag. <laughs> banality is very important in contemporary art like Campbell's soup cans. And the reason it's important is because it's true. Whether you like it or whether you don't like it is not really so interesting. But it's, it's true. Carl Andre's work is somehow very true. And one lives in a world, or we all live in a world of banality. We all live in a world where everything is the same and where everything is put together the same way. So what I'm doing, which is different from what, let's say, a lot of current, younger, figurative artists are doing, which is more, obviously, to do with fantasy, I am using the language, this banal language. I'm using this and I'm misusing it. But I think we have to understand it in some way. We have to deal with it, because it's what we are, what, what we made. So right here, the commonality of our contemporary culture, we see the same thing again and again. That includes the American flag, displayed obsessively as a way of binding people together in America. But we are equally binded, as Warhol understood, by brand names. Exxon, Colgate, Ford, Mercedes, and Tropicana Orange Juice. This is our life. It's made of repetition. No matter who we are, rich or poor, we use the same toothpaste and the same gasoline. Isn't that nice? So even if you're a poor person, you can share something with a very rich person. Brand names. The painting on the right... Murphy is um, obviously referring to Beckett and it has in it a sense of body and a sense of figure and a sense of a figure somehow being trapped and pushed down but fighting its way out. 
And that's that strip at the bottom. So the relationships in these paintings are always a little off, always a little awkward. Everything is mismatched, like a bad suit, a bad anything, or a car with the wrong size wheels. Painting on the left is called The Fall. It's a huge painting with a tremendous weight at the top that's coming down into the bottom of the painting, and the bottom of the painting is rising up. So it's very combative as a composition. And all these paintings, I must stress, are made freeform in a way. They're shaped paintings but they're not predetermined shape paintings. They're shape paintings that are arrived at organically. And the nearest um, parallel cousin that I can think of in this sense is perhaps Rauschenberg's combines that seem to be made organically. But most other abstract shape paintings tend to be made outside in. Mine are made inside out by adding, taking off, adding, taking away, putting, turning the painting around, which I did with all these paintings. I was twisting them around, adding, taking off pieces, repainting, putting them back together. It was all very, very free. Painting on the right is called Come In. And uh, Let's see, when was that painted? 83, 1983. Uh, um, Diane Waldman, who was senior curator at Guggenheim, came to my studio with a young, very vibrant curator called Susan Taylor. And... They were looking at this painting. And of course, for me, it was uh, being a young painter, it was a momentous occasion that the Grand Dame from the Guggenheim would visit my studio. And that didn't stop me, however, from messing it up. <laughs> so she, uh, uh, Diane Waldman, said, Ah, yes, come in. This relates to architecture. In other words, she was looking, as she would do, she would be inclined to, for order, for rationality. I told her the story about how the painting got its name, which I will tell you very quickly. It comes from a visit from a friend of mine who had just read something about Joyce and Beckett. And he visited my studio, therefore he is an insert into my studio, and he told me that when Beckett was dictating to Joyce, uh, sorry, went the other way around, when Joyce was dictating to Beckett, Beckett was writing it down, someone knocked on a door, Joyce said, come in, Beckett wrote down, come in. So, you know, it's like saying, well, we went to the beach and we were just getting out of the come-in car and we, we all got out. And so the next day they were going over it and they had an argument about this come-in thing. And Beckett said, you said it, so it has to be in. And Joyce said, OK, leave it in. So you read this text and it just says come in and, and then it goes on and I thought it was a fantastic um, way of titling the painting so I called it come in so by the time I'd explained all this um, I realised that Diane Warman wasn't going to buy one of my paintings for the Guggenheim <laughs> because it didn't fit. And this is what I referred to in the beginning about this division of 
the rational and the irrational, the organic and the geometric, and I'm not interested in this at all. And I have tried to, to just use both. And I've been interested in both and I've practiced both, particularly early on. Because my work is basically geometric looking, but the sense of the painting is that there isn't really much sense to it because I draw this panel on the left and I slam it up against something that's painted on the right and it looks kind of interesting, but you can't really understand what it is. This relates back to what I was saying about Warhol. It's the slippage in things that creates the psychological freedom. That's what's interesting about that Marilyn. It's off. And because it's off, it's a little bit fascinating because you're always trying to straighten it up. You know, a little like a picture on a wall. It's crooked, and then you straighten it. And then you go to get a coffee, and then it goes like that. <laughs> and that's kind of irritatingly somehow engaging. Anyway, this is what I was doing in the 80s, and uh, some people liked it. Ned Rifkin liked it. Some people didn't. These are not mine. <laughs> so the Pollock is number one. That's in uh, the galleries, if you would like to have a look at it. Van Gogh. Uh, 1890, Whitfield with crows. These are two artists who exemplify the issue that I'm talking about when I talk of immersion. Also with, with uh, Van Gogh, there's no space in the painting. All the space is crowded out. It's all rhythm, it's all desperation, it's all utter identification. The space between the artist and the painting is closed down to the point where the artist is the painting. And I think that's part of Van Gogh's importance. He's a precursor to a very strong tendency in 20th century art, which is a deep psychological attachment to be in and of the work, exemplified by people like Joseph Boyce, who's, again, a very, very interesting character. And you can't be more in the painting than Pollock, who's literally on the painting, walking around on the painting, dancing on the painting. This is a sculpture I'm making. And when I started to make this sculpture, somebody asked me to make it, referring back to this point I made before about the kind of art that you make should be as you are, a consequence of what you are. When I started to make this sculpture, there was no question of how it would be for me. There was no question of... Um, Style. In other words, it wasn't a stylistic problem, is what I want to say. I made a wall of light painting cubed. It's enormous. And the only two things that I could think of when I saw it, that represents 10% of it, and that's the maquette, by the way, um, was Jackson Pollock and Finnegan's Wake because it seemed to me to be utterly non-negotiating. It's bestial, in a sense. It's geometric, but it's bestial. And the stones that make the drawing are running right through the sculpture. I think I'm going to speed up, because I might <laughs> fall over soon. <laughs> I'm weaker than I look. Okay, 
I'm going to go to the 90s now. Why and what yellow? 88. Pale fire, 88. So at the end of the 80s, the paintings, my paintings, started to flatten out. And instead of making the paintings figurative, figural, or with body, with the body of the box of the painting, I started to put windows in. And the windows, the insets, were painted separate to the painting and then put into the painting to disturb or violate or puncture the field, to make an intrusion in the field and to make a figurative, figure-ground relationship. That's what I'm doing and that's what I refer to and return to here. So I'm using, again, the concreteness of concrete kunst in a way and the pattern making that I took from Northern Africa and the deep romantic tradition of light-filled colored surfaces. So the surfaces are at once weighted and lit to a degree. The paintings are quite physical, but not as emphatically sculptural as they were earlier on in the 80s. So again, this is another, I consider this to be another break in my work. And all the time, the way that I paint, the way that I was painting, and the way that I draw is very subtly changing, without me even noticing it very much. Painting on the left is called Long Light, painted in the 90s. And the painting on the right is called Between You and Me. So this, again, is about distended relationships, broken relationships, provisional and difficult, damaging, damaged relationships. As you can see, the little panel on the painting on the right is isolated with a frame. It's a rough wooden frame. And it's on a field that's made of the same stuff as the stuff that the right inset is made with. So everything is being cannibalized and twisted. So instead of actually making a different sort of structure, I'm using the same stuff but hoping to metamorphosize it. Change what it is, change what it signifies by where it is and how it's painted, the proportions and so on. And you have this sense of distance, near, far, detailed, massive, and this looks almost like a snowscape the one on the left I'm talking about. So the um, Manet is um, dead Toreador. And the other painting, To Be With, uh, painted in 96, um, is a study in grey. So just to touch on this issue of Spanish painting, Manet, who I think we all consider as a great artist, refers to Ribera, Velázquez, and Spanish painting way back. But he transforms it to his own subject. And this is what painting can do. It can reinvent itself all the time. But the influence of Manet on me is quite profound in the hand, the speed of the brushstroke. 
it has in it a sense of reserve, which I find noble. And the reserve in the painting is obviously a classicizing impulse, which I have myself strongly in me. There's also a melancholia in this color, in this color gray. And he, of course, is a master of it, as was Valesquez, and as I would like to be. So this painting is a huge triptych, took a couple of years to make. And it's a, a study in gray. And the gray between things, between hard positions, is very interesting to me in art and in life, which, of course, are the same, since everything is the same. Everything's connected to everything else. Anyway, he's a great painter of grey who refers back in his own time and forward. When I started painting in 1970, let's say, seriously, Painting was dead, and conceptual art was very dominant. And uh, I remember I first came to the States, and I met another Harkness fellow, because I came over on a Harkness fellowship, and he was an artist. And he asked me if I was painting, and I said, no. And he said, oh, good. And I said, no, I'm not painting because I'm looking for a studio. <laughs> it's not because I gave up or anything like that. But in the 70s, you know, people would be walking backwards and forwards through tunnels, making videos of it, and so on and so forth, showing time. Very similar to some of the things that go on now in video. And a lot of the video that we see around now was pioneered in the 60s. I believe that one thing doesn't replace another. It has nothing to do with it, in a sense. They're independent. And painting, as you all know, has returned with a vengeance. And most of it is European. And I believe that this has something to do with the absence of the domination in their cultural syntax of formalism. That the greys, and I use this in terms of position, the psychology of understanding things, allowing things to develop, are more prevalent there, particularly in Germany. And that's where so much good painting is coming from. The other thing I would say while I'm, you know, on my little soapbox is that America doesn't have enough what I would call halfway museums for young artists. There's a lot of power museums and they're fantastic art palaces that show the the best and the greatest, and these are wonderful. But these lower museums, second-class, third-class museums, are not abundant enough. Maybe it's because they're not heroic. And this is essentially a heroic culture. Painting on the left is uh, Union Green, 94. Again, very heavily painted, diptych, one side dialoguing with another side, returning to this idea of the relationship. Painting on the right, I painted in um, Barcelona, 
It's called Sea Wall. This is a painting that took about a year. And as you can see, it's a blanket of gray that holds down what was essentially a red painting. Holds it captive. Painting on the left is Dark Wall. That's very recent. I painted that in uh, Germany. The painting on the right is Wall of Light Tara, painted in 2000. This is a very interesting painting to me because it started out as a yellow painting. And as I would go away and come back, I would look at the painting again. And I, I, I love to go away. And then I love to come back. And I like to be able to go away and get something and return and give it to the painting, which is waiting. So the painting has a time to live in that state, and I have a time to contemplate the painting. And I have a time to reflect on it to change in some way, in the way that a human being might change slightly. And as I, as I looked at the painting, after not seeing it for about 10 months on one occasion, I started working on this painting again, Tara, and then I started to remove the yellows until the painting had reached the point where it was almost a grey painting, but not quite. And the yellow in the painting stands for something other. It refers to another feeling, another sense, the world of nature. And the grey is, of course, much more of a melancholic sense. What I would say is, in relation to this issue of persistence and style, I would say that things change over time if you are, in a way, in a sense, devoted. And I work in a, sense, in a way that is devoted. There is no space between me and the paintings. I'm making the paintings, thinking about the paintings, doing the paintings all the time. And yet the way that I paint has changed dramatically throughout my life without really changing the element that's being painted. And this is really another possibility for painting. That's a nice painting on the left. It's The Last Supper, 1498. The painting on the right is um, Raphael by me. Oh, 04. So I thought it'd be nice, you know, you'd like, I thought you'd like this. Because it's kind of an Italian theme. That refers to Raphael of Urbino, who, of course, was the ultimate bridge builder, the great classicizer. And this painting, which I actually just got to see, is an extraordinarily beautiful painting. It really is one of the wonders of the world. What's also interesting about this painting in relation to art history and people's reputations at the time is that you'll see there's a door in it. And at the other end of the banqueting hall where Leonardo's painting is, is a painting by another artist that nobody bothers to look at anymore. And it's really quite tragic to see it 
I mean, it's quite a nice painting, but it's chaotic in its composition. But it does not have a door in it. This implies, to me at least, being a fairly political person, that Leonardo was willing to have a doorway in his painting. Thus, the other guy must have been more important because he's got the whole wall. If you look at this painting, the figures are animated. Well, if you look at my painting, and I talk about Leonardo's painting, you see that the figures are animated, but the architecture is relentless. And it is so awesomely monumental. A little like the architecture of Peter Zumthor, who's a current architect, wonderful architect. Hugely and massively monumental. And everything leads to Jesus, to the head of Jesus. So there's a relentlessly symmetrical painting with a door right in the middle of it, by the way, when you see it, because the door goes right down to the floor. And what humanizes the painting and animates it is that the head of Jesus is inclined. So you've got a very subtle subversion of a relentless architectural matrix by the inclination of a head. And if you look at my painting, you'll see that that's not a perfect grid. And I push this, this way, this way, to break the tyranny of the grid to make movement in the painting that is very subtle. Painting on the left is a triptych. And that's new painting. It's called Iona. Of course, three is a perfect number. We'll never get over it. And it allows you to have something in the middle and something on either side. What could be more perfect? And there's a reason, of course, that it runs through a lot of religious art. Painting on the left, panel on the left in Iona, is blue. You can't really see it from here. And the one in the middle is very orange, is strange orange that's stained into the other colours, inhabits these creams in, in some strange way. And then the painting on the right is really more brown with red underneath it. So there are all these subtle connections between things. And I would say that my art, as emblematic as it is, as architecturally masculine as it is, is extremely feminine in the way that it is colored and in the way that the architecture is subverted and humanized by detail. As they say, God is in the details. So this painting gives off a different feel from panel to panel as you walk from one side to the other. It's very big. Um, so one on the left is much more like the sea, the feeling of the sea. And then there's the earth in the center, and the other end is more like the color of clay. Now, I wanted to juxtapose that and, in a sense, Raphael with another very recent painting called Vladimir. This is obviously a dedication to um, <clears throat> Beckett, who wrote, I think, undoubtedly the best, most important, most beautifully crafted play of the 20th century, Waiting for Godot. Vladimir is a character in the play. And the space in this painting 
is considerably less frontal than the space in Raphael or the space in those paintings there, Iona. It's a, it's, it's a lot more un, unfilled out, you might say. Or it's, it's, it's not so, it doesn't make the facade that a lot of the other paintings make that have... They give a little. This gives a lot. It's the space in this is extremely um, elastic. So it has deep space, big holes in it, and the 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 painting seems to be more um, chaotic. And like Vladimir himself, badly dressed. So. So just to finalize, I would say that to return to the issue of universality, we will achieve this willingly or not. We all share the same earth. We all breathe the same air as JFK so poignantly articulated. And one way or another, willingly or not, we will come to understand that we are all one. So this is my agenda, politically, and artistically it is to, in a sense, nuance abstraction so it can move forward. You've been a lovely audience, you haven't interrupted me once, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate that, thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.